you know, we were just all choosing to try to avoid the pain of everything. You know, the loss of a parent on top of being adoptees who started life with the loss of parents, we just weren't really coping with all of that very well. We probably thought we were. We probably looked to other people like we were doing okay, that we were just doing whatever other teenagers were doing, but we really weren't. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to meet Rebecca, who called me from outside of Richmond, Virginia. Rebecca has lived a life in adoption from the formation of her family with her adoption to becoming a birth mother, dedicating her professional life to adoption, and experiencing reunion with her birth mother, birth father, and her son. Her reunions have been a mix of denial and near rejection to full acceptance after years of anticipation and surprise to be found by the parents of her own child. You're going to be amazed to hear how much adoption can be woven throughout one adoptee's life. This is Rebecca's journey. Every conversation with my guests starts with a little small talk to make sure each person is comfortable talking and to get into a flow with some connection between us. Rebecca threw me a little curve in our chat when she said, Well, I have to tell you, I have been uh, catching up on all the last few of your podcasts, and I kind of want to say to you, how are you? Because the last few stories have been a little rough and you've been sitting with some hard, hard information with some adoptees out there. Oh my gosh. I appreciate you sort of thinking about my welfare in that way. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And what's crazy, you might not realize this is I actually listen to every story twice, right? So I interview every person and then I actually do the edits for the show, which for some of the mistakes you've heard from time to time. So, you know, i cry with the people the first time and I cry with them the second time. When oh, that point. It's just, it's rough, but, um, yeah, the last, the last few have been very powerful, but you know, really just, I mean, I just give those folks so much credit for sharing their honesty and their vulnerability, but I know, I know what that's like to sit and listen to all those stories over and over and over again. So I hope you're taking good care of yourself. I am. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm a relatively easygoing person and I'm able to just let things go to a degree. You know, I feel fortunate to be in this position that people trust me with their stories and and allow me to help them move them forward. But I I also don't necessarily carry them with me for an extended period. I definitely think about them, but good, um, good. From time to time, I do think, you know, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. (laughs) I bet. I bet. Rebecca was born in California and she was the youngest of four babies adopted by her parents in the 1960s. None of her siblings are genetically related to each other. Her parents moved the family up and down the California coast, following her father's career in the military. I think I always knew I was adopted, so I, I don't think I can recall a specific time that I was told. I mean, I'm the youngest of four, so you know, I, I usually joke with people that it's very likely my sister told me more than anyone else because, you know, <laughs> why keep it from the youngest one, right? So, you know, growing up, 
I think I always knew I was adopted. I feel like it was mostly an okay subject to talk about, at least from a, a positive standpoint. And I also feel like our parents knew a lot of other adoptive families. So there was a lot of talk about, you know, so-and-so is, is like us. You know, they also got their children through adoption. So around us were a lot of people who had also adopted I don't really know how they connected so well with other families like that, but I feel like we always had other families that were sort of like us. Mm. That's really interesting. You know, it's probably one of those things, you know how it is when you're a kid, you don't really realize the adult's conversation that's happening above your head, right? Yeah. And, you yeah. Know, the, the adults will, will admit stuff to each other like, you know, oh, she, you know, she's adopted or whatever. You, right. You would <laughs> never know that that was the discussion that they had. Yeah. Exactly. So you were the youngest of four. And what was the breakdown of adoptees? So we're all adopted, all four of us. And we're not, uh, none of us from the same uh, biological family. So we're all completely different and from completely separate situations. Mm -hmm. And what was your sort of racial makeup in the house? What's your cultural, is there any cultural diversity? (laughs) Well, uh, yes and no. It's It's an interesting question. So the first three kids, my parents are Caucasian and um, happen to have a Hispanic sounding last name. But their first three kids, all blonde haired, blue eyed, adorable children, Caucasian, of course, um, seemingly to match my dad, who was blonde haired, blue eyed. (laughs) And then I came along and actually they tried to stop my family from taking me on my placement day. My family showed up with these three other blonde-haired, blue-eyed children and my dad, who looks like my dad, and my mom, who has dark hair and and hazel eyes, as I do. Um, But they show up at the agency, and the agency said, oh, gosh, we're sorry. We've made a mistake. You're not going to want this baby. And my parents were like, oh, I don't think so. We did not bring all three of our very young children down here to not come home with their baby sister that we told them we were getting. And what had happened is that they assumed my family was Hispanic because of their last name. And then when they showed up, obviously not Hispanic, my biological mother is 100% Mexican. So they had me sort of tagged as a Hispanic baby and thought they were placing me with a Hispanic family. And then when this Caucasian family shows up with all these other Caucasian children, they sort of went, whoops. (laughs) And they didn't think my parents would want me. And as my mom, when she finally told me that story, which she did not tell me until I was in my 20s, she said, but, you know, of course we said, well, no, of course we'll see this baby. And we're not at all concerned about that. And the part of the story that they always told me growing up was that they took one look at me And my father said, oh, gosh, she's going to be the beauty of the family. And that's the only piece of that story that I had heard as a child. (laughs) The rest of it, my mom chose to tell me when I was in my 20s. So growing up, yes, fully Caucasian family. I didn't really was not raised to really understand that I was fully half Mexican, didn't have any connection to that ethnicity or culture uh, at all. So grew up in a fully Caucasian family. But technically, I guess I'm not. (laughs) That's really interesting. So. If I had to guess, I mean, if your mom's 100% Mexican, you probably don't look necessarily white with, with blonde hair. <laughs> no, I don't. So it seems to me like you probably stand out a little bit in the family. 
Yeah, I was definitely the odd kid out in the looks department. I had dark hair, you know, hazel, dark hazel eyes, and probably tanned a smidge easier than the rest of them. So I think I, you know, I matched our last name, whereas they didn't. (laughs) You know, people, (laughs) you know, would, would hear my last name and go, oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. She's Hispanic. And so I sort of fit the name and they didn't really fit the name, but I didn't look like any of them other than I do look like my mom. And my mom was really sort of finally pleased that they had finally matched a kid to her was her thinking is, you know, there's finally there's a kid here that's got dark hair and sort of looks like me. So that's really interesting. How yeah. did you matching was a deal in the 60s, apparently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. How did you get along with your parents? I, you know, growing up, I, I would have told you at certain times in my life, I would have told you I had a great childhood. In my elder years, as I look back, I go, oof, no, actually, there was a lot going on in my childhood. <laughs> but I get along with my parents well, great relationship with my mother. My father, unfortunately, passed away when I was 12, going on 13. So he has, of course, not been in my life for the majority of my life. I did have a stepfather who entered my life about a year later and had a fabulous relationship with him. And he passed away not too long ago in 2019. So, but mom and I have a good relationship. I really have worked hard to have a good relationship with her and to really value our time together. And, and I'm continuing to work hard at that now. I'm sorry. That must've been tough for you guys to lose your dad at a young age, especially a young age for you. It was. I mean, it left my mom with four teenagers. And um, as many, many of the stories you've already heard can attest to, uh, those of us who come to our families through adoption don't always have easy adolescence. (laughs) So it really was a very difficult time for all of us. And just the timing of it, I mean, not that he could predict his own heart attack, but, and it left my mom really vulnerable and alone. And while she had been a a military mom, so she was sort of used to deployments and and being by herself, this was quite quite a loss to all of us, for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. That must have been really, really tough. Rebecca had a tumultuous set of teen years in the early 1980s. She struggled in many ways. Rebecca admitted she wasn't taking great care of herself as she blazed through her adolescence. Let's see how much escapism I can do. You know, the old adage of sex, drugs, and rock and roll was alive and well. (laughs) So I was making lousy decisions and lousy choices and not taking good care of myself and did find myself pregnant actually at 14 and uh, then turned 15 midway through the pregnancy. So when my son was born, I was uh, fully 15 years old and uh, not very well put together at that time in my life for sure. So it did lead me to uh, make the decision to place him for adoption and uh, thus start the uh, second side of adoption that I got to live from that point forward. Wow. That was, that's, sounds like it was really rough because just from your perspective, you've lost your father. You're trying to find your way and you find yourself pregnant accidentally and not in a position to keep your son. Tell me about your decision to relinquish him. What what kinds of things were going through your mind while you were pregnant? Well, you know, uh, I tried to deny I was pregnant for a long time, as many teenagers do. We just sort of hope it goes away, right? You know, I I knew I was. Although, honestly, I was in sex education already pregnant. So 
a little, you know, too little, too late. <laughs> uh, but realizing sitting in sex education that, uh oh, like I think I'm already in trouble. So I really was just functioning out of fear and denial for a good half of my pregnancy. And then when I, and finally, I, you know, my, my brother was teasing me about gaining weight and I finally blurted out to him that I wasn't gaining weight. I, I think I'm pregnant. And he told my sister and my sister said, gosh, we need to confirm this. And then she convinced me to tell my mom. And, you know, right away, my mom was, of course, shocked and dismayed and upset and all the things that moms would be when their uh, daughter is is pregnant so young. But she also pretty quickly recovered and said, Let's let's go confirm how far along you are. Let's see a doctor. Let's talk about options and choices. And I was much too far along in the pregnancy for abortion to be a choice for me. And so, you know, I pretty quickly said, well, I know about adoption because that's our family at the time. Seemed okay to me. Why not make this choice for my son? My mom did offer to help. She absolutely said, if, you know, you want to try to do this, I will do whatever I need to do to help you. And, you you know, you can bring this child home. My grandparents offered to help, which seemed absolutely ridiculous to me as old as they were or as old as they seemed to me at the time. My sister, who, you know, was uh, 19 going on 20, certainly offered. And that didn't seem like a good idea to me either. I mean, it's sort of all of it seemed chaotic and that it would just be a wreck for everyone. I couldn't imagine how my mom would do it. She was the sole breadwinner at that point because, of course, my father's already gone. And um, so I just kept saying to people, I really don't think I should try to parent or that anyone else in the family should try to parent. And I think we should just make an adoption plan for him. And I sort of stuck with that. And was was pretty clear. That's what I felt I needed to do, and what I thought was the best thing to do at that time. Wow, there were so many offers for support, but it didn't feel like any of them really could have truly worked out from your position at the at that time. At that moment, it didn't feel like it. It just again, my my sense of the family at that moment in time is we had been in just chaos for a couple of years of everyone sort of spiraling out of control in their own unique ways. And everything felt really hard. Like all of it felt hard and didn't seem like the smart decision to just bring a baby into that. And I certainly didn't feel capable or competent to do any parenting myself at that age. So, you know, I think I'm a little unique, well, maybe not completely unique, but unique in some of my era of uh, fellow birth moms and that I did, I was offered loads and loads of other options and opportunities. It, it wasn't like I didn't have other choices. I just went with what my 15 year old brain thought would work best for everyone. Can you just say a couple of words about what else was going on in the family? Because for anybody listening, we're just talking about you, but there's, right. <laughs> it sounds like more chaos than just this one teenage girl who has come home pregnant. There's three other teenagers who've lost their dad with a single mom. And it sounds like a challenging time. What, like, what other kinds of things were happening in, in the family universe? 
Well, I think the safest thing to say, just to be fair to my siblings, is, you know, we were just all choosing to try to avoid the pain of everything. You know, the loss of a parent on top of being adoptees who started life with the loss of parents, we just weren't really coping with all of that very well. We probably thought we were. We probably looked to other people like we were doing okay, that we were just doing whatever other teenagers were doing. But we really weren't. And my mom wasn't doing a great job of of managing her own grief enough to help us. So it feels like the best way to say it is that we were all sort of floundering and not making great choices and sort of making our way through, you know, barely making it through high school and not making good decisions about our, you know, extracurricular activities. (laughs) And, And that's why it all felt chaotic. It just felt like just a lot of things not going well. And on the heels of none of it felt like we had recovered well from my father's death. Yeah. So can you (laughs) tell me a little bit about your, your birth experience and relinquishing your son? (laughs) Well, you know, I had, um, so my stepfather was around. He wasn't really my stepfather, so to speak. He never married my mother, but he was in my life from around the time that I was pregnant all the way up until he died. So he might as well have been my stepfather. They were together for a very long time. You know, he was there and was a huge help in helping my mother and I just navigate a pregnancy. So one of the things that uh, becomes painfully obvious to a mother who's never given birth is that she's no capacity to help her daughter know about pregnancy and about giving birth. And so my mom felt very, um, like, I don't know how to answer your questions. I don't know what to tell you about what's normal that you're feeling and what isn't. And he had three children from his first marriage and and had been very involved in, obviously, their births and pregnancies. (laughs) And so he was helpful on that front, incredibly so. He suggested to my mom that we do Lamaze classes together. And as a matter of fact, one night, my mom couldn't go with me. And my stepfather did, which made for a very odd, (laughs) weird (laughs) couple in the Lamaze class. But, you know, he said we should help her get as prepared as possible for childbirth. So that was really smart and wise. And I really appreciated that when I did finally give birth late (laughs) and ended up having to have a C-section. I was, of course, way out of my element at that point because Lamaze doesn't help you with that. And, you know, afterwards, I I don't remember my agency, adoption agency social worker really saying much to me at all about whether I should or should not see my son. But after I was recovered and, and sort of back in my room, I asked my mom, well, am I going to get to see him? And she's like, well, I think so. They just bring the babies down whenever babies need to be brought to their mothers. So they should bring your baby to you. And That never happened. And so finally, my mom asked one of the nurses and said, well, why why hasn't her baby been brought to her? And she said, oh, well, she's placing him for adoption. So she she doesn't get to see him. And my mom was like, oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, She wants to see her baby and she has a right to see her baby. And you will bring that baby down here. And so, of course, then they started uh, bringing him down to me like they did with all the mothers. But I, I dealt with a couple of unkind comments. Um, as a matter of fact, that same nurse who finally wheeled my son into the room decided that her first comment to me would be, well, I don't know how anyone could give away such a beautiful baby. And I thought, well, gee, that's a really unkind thing to say to a scared 15-year-old who's just given birth and had major surgery. But 
whatever. But I had, you know, my mom was my, my trooper and, and absolutely laid that woman out <laughs> in no uncertain terms that she was not to speak to me like that again. So I actually spent five days in the hospital with my son and, you know, we had pictures with him and my mom held him and I held him, my stepfather held him. And I think I had a friend stop by and she got to see him. And so I, I got a few days with him. And um, when the, when they were ready to discharge me and my son, the agency worker, you know, asked if I needed any more time with him. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'd like to just go in a room alone with him for a couple more minutes. And, you know, I said some things into his ears and wished him well and did not see him again from that day forward until 20 years later. So that was, you know, a couple of days after that, we were back at the adoption agency and I was signing entrustment documents. And I think it took maybe not even three weeks for him to be with his adoptive family. So he was placed pretty quickly. How was your mentality after leaving him? You've whispered in his ear, sort of wished him a great life and and told him, I hope, you know, that I hope you said I love you or what have you. But it sounds (laughs) like, you know, you probably said some amazing things to him to let him know that he was cared for. How was your mentality after you've I mean, you've gone through major surgery and released a child. <laughs> How did you do in the recovery in the aftermath? Yeah, you know, being 15 has its pros and cons. And one of the pros is that you're sort of too young and naive to know what you don't know. <laughs> and there was just a huge part of me, quite honestly. And I know this, this doesn't always sound right when I say this, but it is my truth. I just wanted to be a teenager again. I just wanted to be like all the other teenagers again. So I pretty quickly just went back into teenage mode. You know, I I had been separated out from my high school to a special school that was a part of the, the public school system, but all the pregnant girls went to a separate place. And I had to go back there for a little while. The timing of my son's birth was, you know, right around Christmas. And so I made the choice to actually return to my school in January when everyone else was starting a new semester. I just thought it would be easier. I could have stayed in the other school a little bit longer, but I figure everyone's starting a new class. I'll start a new class with them and maybe it won't be so noticeable that I was completely absent for the first half of the year. And I I did just sort of pour myself into, let's just be a teenager again and let's put this behind us with the caveat that I didn't hide this from anyone who asked me. I actually carried around pictures in my purse for a long time. And if anyone asked me what happened or I heard or the rumor is that you had a baby, I would whip out the photographs and say, well, yes, I did. And look at these beautiful pictures of him. So I didn't I didn't really hide it from anyone per se, but I didn't shout it at the rooftops either. And I honestly thought everyone in my high school knew it just you just feel that way as a pregnant teen that, of course, you were, you know, a part of everybody's rumor mill. And everyone must have known. And it wasn't until years later, um, talking to uh, you know people at high school reunions, and <laughs> that actually a lot of people didn't have a clue that I'd had a child in high school. And I was just dumbfounded by that. I was like, wow. "How did you not know? Not everybody knew." <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's interesting though to hear you talk about it because you've heard the stories before of women who were so shamed and as you were somewhat separated and asked mm-hmm. to carry on and not sort of put this behind you forget about it and let's not ever talk about it again but it sounds like 
you got the opportunity to own it. And I'm, I don't know if I'm using the right words here. I'm just going to sort of riff for a minute, but it sounds like you got the opportunity to own it. And therefore you didn't have to endure the shame that was put on you. You got to sort of own your own narrative, I guess is what I'm saying. Admit what Mm -hmm. happened and, and share it with people. How does that feel to you as someone who got that experience versus so many other mothers who were forced to hide themselves, hide their bodies mm-hmm. recovery, like hide their emotions and not not get the chance to talk about it with literally anybody? What does it feel like for you to think about your own experience versus what it sounds like most other experiences were in that in that era? Well, you know, because I I chose to to professionally go into the the world of adoption, it definitely uh, solidified for me that my avenue of management of this situation was at least a smidge healthier than the alternative. Now, I certainly could connect with those same feelings of shame. I certainly had enough individual experiences in throughout my pregnancy of the sort of shame looks and comments and reactions from people that I I understand the shame. I just simply had a different opportunity to not have to live in that shame in the same way as my predecessor birth mothers. And so, you know, it certainly for me is very validating that being able to talk about it, being able to share it, being able to not ever have to really hide the information is just a healthier way to live with it. And I certainly thought that I was just making the best decision for me. It just felt right to me. I don't know that I had a ton of uh, consideration that I put into it at 15. Who, who does? It just didn't feel like I needed to hide the information necessarily. But like I said, I don't know that I necessarily announced it to people either. Um, I just ran that sort of middle ground of, I'm not going to keep him a secret. I won't go out of my way to tell everyone, but I was pretty proud of myself. He's a beautiful baby. And, you know, I believed he was going to be a beautiful person. And I, my belief at that time, which sounds weird now, because I've just told you about how chaotic my family was. I really did think adoption was fine at that time. I thought, oh, our family's okay. (laughs) Even though we absolutely didn't seem okay. I thought we were okay. I thought that it was fine. I thought that adoption was a good thing. And so I had a belief that he was going to be fine too. And so that also didn't feel like something I needed to be shameful about. And, and I didn't, I didn't understand all that I now understand about the consequences of adoption. And, you know, that just you couldn't I couldn't have known then what I know now, that's for sure, as we all can look back on our lives and say, I'm sure. But to me, it's confirmation all the time that what we did to women in the baby scoop era, what a lot of agencies and a lot of people still try to do to women to this day around sort of forcing shame on them is is absolutely unhealthy and dysfunctional and not fair and and not necessary. It's also just not necessary. Yeah. For, for women to have to feel that way about giving birth and bringing a person into the world. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. we're really judgmental of other people's actions, right? I do, <laughs> we are. I do great stuff and you're not as smart as me. And so you, you know, you're not as good a person. You know, that's kind of the mentality that we sometimes have hold mm-hmm. for other people. 
and uh, and we look for sometimes it's just a way to make ourselves feel better about stuff that we didn't do so hot, right? Exactly. Oh, I've seen you exactly. make a big mistake. Now I feel better about myself. And right. It it you know flies in the face of what I'm always preaching, which is empathy for somebody else's position. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I I appreciate you sharing that story too because there's a small subset of adoptees who are also birth mothers who have relinquished a child. <laughs> and it's just yep. fascinating to hear uh, the cycle that happened. It happens yeah. sometimes, you know, it's really, really interesting. So I, I appreciate your openness and sharing that piece. Sure. I, I think I told you early on in, in our exchange back and forth on email, there's no way I can talk about this without talking about all of it. Rebecca didn't have any medical information to put in her son's file since, as an adoptee, she didn't have any information about herself. She said she really felt badly about not being able to leave her son information about himself in his records. Rebecca's mother had a friend who worked in the California agency from which Rebecca was adopted, so her mom reached out and said, Look, don't break the law or anything, but can you tell us if there's any medically important information in Rebecca's file that might be helpful? Unfortunately, there wasn't anything to pass along. By this point, Rebecca had been through a lot, so I wanted to understand what the catalyst was for her search for her biological family. She told me that when she was working with the social worker when she was pregnant, it clicked to her that one day she could work in the adoption space to help others. Rebecca didn't even know social work was a profession, but she thought that was a job she could do. With new direction, she finished high school and went on to college, then graduate school, and became a professional social worker. She started her first job with an adoption agency that she's still working for today. This agency happens to always have employed a lot of adoptees, a lot of adoptive parents, and other birth parents. Um, We just were one of those kinds of agencies that the people that work there are personally touched by adoption, which is pretty cool. And so one of my coworkers was very active in her own search for her birth mother. And it was sort of peaking her search. And we were doing a lot of talking about it at the agency because this is what we do all day, right? Because we talk about adoption. And so it was a very safe place to talk about your personal stuff that was happening in adoption. So I kept hearing about her search. And prior to that, I would have absolutely been one of those adoptees who said, no, I'm good. I don't, I'm not really interested. Nah, you know, if she didn't want me then, I I don't need to go find her now. One mother's enough. You know, I was definitely in that camp. And even though I was now a birth mom, keep in mind, which is just crazy, but I had resigned myself to, I made my choice for my son. I would not go search for him. It would be his choice if he ever wanted to find me. Um, that was my thinking in regards to him. But I never really sort of flip-flopped the whole thing <laughs> to think, oh, wait a minute, what if he decides he doesn't want to find me? That, what, that doesn't make any sense. But anyways, watching my coworker go through her search and she was successful and finding her birth mom and, and to get to meet her once and, and just talking about it with her and, and seeing that happen, I, I suddenly went, oh, you know, I think I really do want to do this. And I actually now have some resources because I was now working in an agency that was, you know, being very supportive of adoptees searching. And it was an agency that absolutely supports open access to records and on and on. So I had 
information about how to do it, which I had never had before. In 1993, Rebecca contacted the state of California to get her non-identifying information. It took about a year for the state to return her info, which she said was eye-opening, but not that helpful. I asked Rebecca to clarify what she meant. Well, it was eye-opening because I had a little paragraph growing up about my birth mother and birth father, a very short paragraph that basically gave their their ages and uh, their ethnicity, which was wrong for my birth mom, <laughs> but you know, a little bit about what they were interested in and that was it, nothing else. So I, I went into my search assuming what most of us, I think, assume about our birth moms is that we were their first child and they weren't ready to be a parent. And so that's why we're placed for adoption. Well, I get my non-ID and discover that I have three older siblings, not younger, <laughs> older siblings. So I was not my birth mother's first child. I was her fourth child, which really sort of rubbed me the wrong way because growing up, I always sort of thought I was meant to be an only child. And I thought for sure that in my birth family, I probably would have been an only child. And that's probably what I was meant to be because I didn't really like competing for all this attention with siblings. And I was in the exact same birth order in my birth mother's family <laughs> as I was in my adopted family. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, dang, I would have had siblings no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> so I was not expecting to, to hear that she had other children. So that was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and, and it wasn't helpful in terms of there wasn't enough detail in there for me to do anything with it. It wasn't going to help me find people. So I ended up having to pay someone to get her name off of the California birth registry, which was a thing that you could do back then. I suspect you could probably still do it now. You know, the California birth registry was made public and, and then people figured out how to match up numbers to ascertain an adoptive name versus a birth name. Anyways, I paid someone <laughs> to actually give me a name and then did a little a little bit of trading with somebody who was doing a search in Virginia that I was helping out with and they were in California and I said, "Well, can you give me any help in California since I'm helping you here in Virginia?" And uh and that's how we we finally found her. So the way that the person in California could help me is she said, well, I just happen to know a friend who's a private investigator. Why don't I see what he can do with the information you have and see what he can come up with? Um, but the deal that he made with her, because he didn't know me and I wasn't paying him, is he said, well, I'll, I can probably find this person for you and I'll reach out and try to confirm that it's her. But if she doesn't want to release any information, I will not release her information. I, I just won't cross that line because I'm not being paid to do this. I don't really know what I'm getting into. I'm doing this as a favor kind of thing. And so true to his word, he found her. He talked to her. He shared why he was reaching out to her and who I was. And she apparently told him that, you know, this information had shook her worse than their worst earthquake. And um, she didn't know that she what she wanted to do or didn't know that she would want to do anything. And she did not give him permission to share any information with me and basically said, I'll need to think about this. So he communicated that back to me. And I said, well, look, let me just send you a letter and a couple of pictures, pass it on to her. I'll explain myself in the letter. And, you know, you promised her you wouldn't share anything. I'm not asking you to just pass on this information to her. And, and he did. 
And that was probably towards the end of 94 that I did that. And in early 95, uh, I got a an envelope at my office because I had put in my letter all the ways to reach me. You can, here's my office, here's my home, here's every way you can reach me, here are the ways to reach me. I got an envelope at my office that had in it just a torn out newspaper article of an Ann Landers column. And I don't know if you ever read Ann Landers, but she was sort of infamous for posting adoptees saying, I want to search. And Ann Landers' response was always, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're being ungrateful and don't, you know, upset your adoptive parents and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) The irony of that was I had actually written to Ann Landers several times trying to change her view. (laughs) <laughs> on uh, how she responded to adoptees. Huh. And to have an Ann Landers column sent to me, which I know was sent to me by my birth mom, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, how would she have known that I had written to Ann Landers? She would have never known that. And she had actually highlighted a couple of lines in the column, which the message was clearly, you should not have done this. I don't really want to be in communication with you. And please go away. I mean, that was just clear that that's what she wanted. So I sat on it for a year and I did nothing. And, you know, I I sort of tried to heal from that. I tried to rationalize it. I tried to understand it. I tried to not be wrecked by it. And I wasn't being successful at any of those things. So I finally, after a year, I thought, okay, you know what? And this year I had figured out for myself where she lived and her address and all that. So I sent her a card and just said, hey, I'm out here. I'm interested. You know, I hope you're doing well. Got no response. I then got sort of nervous that, well, how do I know she got it? And so I did the whole registered letter and got the, you know, postcard back with her signature on it. And it was one of those weird moments of like, I'm actually holding something that my birth mom held. It's actually her writing on here. And, you know, but that that was it. She didn't, you um, know, immediately respond to the registered letter. But about a month after that, I got another envelope at my office and it was a letter from her. And I just, you know, and I tell this story a lot to my potential adoptive parents when I'm trying to help them understand the impact of rejection as a core issue in adoption. This is a story I tell. I got this letter from her. I was reading it at work. I think I was in the middle of a staff meeting. You know, you sit around at staff meetings doing five other things other than listening. (laughs) And I just opened this envelope that didn't have a return address. I didn't know what I was opening. And it's this letter from my birth mom. And I got up and I left the room and I went back to my office. And when my coworkers finally said, you know, where did Rebecca go? (laughs) They didn't find me at my desk. They found me under my desk. I mean, I was as much in a fetal position as a person could get. And, and still be breathing. I was rocked by this letter. I mean, it was devastating to have just her own words of, I don't want to know you. I don't have anything to tell you. I don't know your birth father. I have nothing to tell you about him. And I really just want you to go away was the basic message. And I am obviously paraphrasing. Those are not the words to use, but it was it was rough. And I really, up until that point, had thought, oh, she just needs time. She just needs time. Of course, I understood she'd probably kept me a secret. Of course, I understood that 
you know, she needed to decide how to make this work. But I, I honestly do not think she would just do a flat out no. And I think I also thought, because I put it in my letter to her, that we'll connect around both being birth moms. Like she'll see that I get it. Like I understand. I know how hard it is to make this choice. I made it too. And and we can talk about that. I, I thought that would be something we would connect. And that obviously had no impact on her at all. So uh, so that was rough. <laughs> that was rough. And, and that was like 1996. And I let another year go by or approximately about another year go by. And um, you sitting around just talking to some friends of mine that had known me all my life, one of whom was also an adoptee. She had recently found her birth mom. And we were just talking about how awful this was that, you know, I wasn't going to get to know anything. And and this friend sort of said, well, what else do you know? And I said, well, you know, I actually do know the name of, of her uh, ex-husband, who um, she was actually married to when she was pregnant with me, but he's not my father. Um, I said, I, I do know his name because his name ended up on my original birth certificate uh, because she was legally married to him still. And she's like, well, why don't you find him? <laughs> and I was like, well, why would I find him? And she's like, well, he had to have known about you. He was married to her. He must have known. And I said, well, you know, you might be right. He had to have known because I remember my mother telling me that my adoption took a really long time to finalize because they had to go get the consent of my legal father. So the man she was married to had to consent to this adoption because, of course, babies are presumed to be the <laughs> result of the marriage, right? And that they were separated, and so they had a hard time finding him. But they did finally find him, and he did finally sign, and they could finalize the adoption. So I'm like, you're right. I think he does know about me, and maybe he could help me understand my birth mom and why she's being like this. So she's like, well, let's find him. <laughs> the search began for Rebecca's birth mother's ex-husband. The internet was a growing part of our world, so she was able to find the man and send him an email saying she was interested in his input, but wasn't asking him to intercede in any way. The man responded promptly with an invitation to chat by phone. Rebecca figured the man knew plenty and would be able to clarify a few things for her, perhaps shed some new light. And I get on the phone with him and I said, so, well, I'm not a surprise to you. You already knew about him. He goes, nope. Not until I got your email a couple hours ago. I'm like, excuse me, what? <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, I had no idea. I said, what do you mean? And I told him the story. He's like, no one ever contacted me. I never signed anything. He said, I walked away from that marriage when she was pregnant with their third child a whole year ahead of me. And I never went back. And, you know, he immediately said, I was not a good husband. I was not a good father. I actually don't have great relationships with my kids to this day. So I'm probably not going to be much help to you. But hey, welcome to the family. Good to know you. I mean, he was like super nice. And it got even more bizarre because in between getting my email and then saying, hey, we should talk, he had decided to forward my email to one of his daughters, right? This did not go in good directions. This is one of those things where you look back as an adoptee and you go, hmm, some of the impulsive things we do do not have good outcomes. So by the time he spoke and I could fully explain, he's like, oh, well, I hate to tell you, but I think maybe one of your sisters now knows about you. And I'm like, that's 
might be problematic. And I said, because I don't know that she had told anybody. If you didn't know, I don't think her other kids knew. And I did end up getting an email from my sister, my mother's oldest. And she just very curtly said, hey, I heard you reach out to my father asking about my mother. Who are you and what do you want? (laughs) And I was like, oof. This is not going to go over well. But, you know, I was in at that point and I just had to go full bar. And I just basically said, first of all, I think you need to ask your mom and get her to share with you. And but let me be clear, I did not know the circumstances. The circumstances I was working under were this set of facts. And by the way, this has been three years coming. I haven't been like pushing myself on your mother. I've been slowly doing this over three years. But, you know, you go talk to your mom and uh, see what you can learn and come back to me. (laughs) And that did start the two of us talking. Uh, That's the good news of all this is that she did go back and say to her mother, hey, do you know who this person is and tell me about it? And she, she and I ended up engaging in an online, you know, relationship where she was somewhat open to, I can, I can try to appreciate your perspective and what you were looking for. And I understand you didn't know what you didn't know. And so through that back and forth of emails, um, which I know you're going to ask me about eventually. So this leads into it. She let it slip in one email that I was talking to mom the other night about your birth father. And then she went on to something else. And I was like, if I'd been on the phone with her, I would have been like, hold up. (laughs) you need to back that up. And I said, excuse me, what do you mean you were talking to her about my birth father? Her letter to me clearly said, she knows nothing about my birth father. What were you talking about? And my sister was like, oh, yeah, no, she knows who your birth father is. And I was like, and so now you know who my birth father is? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, that's not okay. It is absolutely not okay. And I like launched into her. I I was probably not very kind, but she, she understood it, thankfully. And I said, it is absolutely not acceptable that you know who my birth father is. And I don't know who my birth father is. And that she lied to me three years ago and, and said she didn't know anything about him and, and come to find out he had been a very prominent person in the area in which she lived in California. He was in the papers all the time. She absolutely knew not only who he was, but actually, where he was at that time. (laughs) There was no way she couldn't have known that. Like my sister said, oh yeah, I see him in the newspapers all the time. I was like, (laughs) not okay. Just not okay. Rebecca's half-sister said she would try to get some more information from from their mother and get permission to share it with Rebecca. Her half-sister came back with the man's name, but didn't share how easily Rebecca could have found this well-known public figure. Rebecca found herself waiting nearly another year and a half to find the man with the very common name hiding right out in plain sight. Her maternal family could have made it easy for her, but they didn't. Rebecca figured things out on her own with what she called a little bit of dumb luck. To be honest with you, you know, back in the 90s, we still weren't really internet savvy yet. Um, you could like download lists of names from various like phone book database kinds of things, but that was about it. And his name is so common. It was like, I was getting just pages and pages and pages 
And I, you know, could filter out to some degree and sort of narrow it down to where I think the area was that he grew up in and sort of do some figuring out. I literally picked one of the names and sent a letter to him and it was the right one. I I picked a name and said, I just have to write to one of these people and start ruling people out. I don't know how else to do this. I wasn't comfortable calling. And so I picked one, felt right, mailed a letter, hoped for the best and waited quite a bit. Come to find out the reason I waited quite a bit is he was out of the country on vacation for like a month and a half. (laughs) And so it wasn't until he came back from vacation, he was going through weeks of mail. His wife actually saw my note first and was just opening all the mail And she opened my note and said, oh, Dennis, you need to see this. (laughs) She knew about me. So thankfully, finding my birth father is a vastly different experience. (laughs) One in which has been just pure joy and delight. And he is awesome. And as soon as he read my letter, he called me and said, I, I think I'm, I'm him. <laughs> and I've been hoping you would find me one day. And, you know, how can we get together? And how can we talk? And what should we do? And tell me what you need to know. And <laughs> he was just like all the things, polar opposite experience. So I had one end of the extreme to the other. And he had told both his wives, his first wife that he has uh, two daughters with and, and this wife that he has a son with, he had told both his wives as he was, you know, dating them and, and planning to marry them that, hey, you need to know I, I have a daughter somewhere in the world. I don't know anything about where she is. But you know, if she ever can figure out how to find me, you know, I will, will welcome her back into the family. And you need to know that. He had not at that point shared that information with his children. And and he did ask for, we mutually decided, let's do a paternity test just to be 100% sure. Because he says, I'm going to tell my kids, but I have a feeling my kids are going to ask me, dad, are you sure? (laughs) And so he said, I want to be able to say to them that, yes, we're we're 100% sure. Um, And of course, we, we both swabbed our cheeks and sent off our uh, paternity test DNA <laughs> to, and, and found out that for sure, I am definitely his. So, so he told his children fairly quickly after that. Rebecca and her birth father got confirmation of their genetic relation. She told me she doesn't look like her birth father very much, but she did say, On the outside, I look very much like my birth mother's side of the family, but on the inside, I'm very much my birth father. (laughs) We just really have the very, very similar sorts of sensibility about life and worldview and sense of humor. So definitely that part is, is very much like him. Rebecca found her birth father in August of 1999. On their first phone call together, her birth father opened himself up saying, you must have a ton of questions. What can I answer? Rebecca froze. She couldn't think of a single thing to ask. Back then, there was no FaceTime or Zoom, so the pair couldn't just see one another easily online from a remote distance like we can today. Rebecca admitted the lack of technology allowed their first meeting to be that much more special. It was going to be her first meeting with any biological relative on her whole journey to that point. She and her husband, flew to Los Angeles International Airport to meet him face-to-face in February of 2000. Rebecca and her husband had stretched out comfortably in the back of the plane for the long flight, so they were the last ones to deplane. When they finally appeared, 
her birth father was standing at the gate. He had flowers and his son was there, who's still a teenager, and his wife was there. And, you know, it was hugs and, oh, my gosh, it's so good to finally see you in person. And, you know, we piled into their car and went to their home and we stayed at their house. We didn't stay too long. We were there about four days. And, you know, they immediately, so as soon as we got to their house, they're like, let's just sit out back and let's just talk. And like, you know, I just really want to share the story and more, you know, now that I'm face to face with you and, you know, let's just get to know each other. And he was absolutely, he's like, you ask me anything, I will tell you. And I won't hold anything back. And I want to hear your whole search story. I I told him sort of bits and pieces. I hadn't really told him everything. And so I did. And and so we had that exchange sort of right away as soon as we all got together. And then the next part of that visit was family members coming over to meet me. He has seven brothers and sisters, uh, and he was the oldest. So there were a lot of his brothers and sisters who did not know about me. (laughs) <laughs> I think there's only one that did. So they were all coming by the house like, oh, okay, well, welcome to the family. <laughs> and so I met, I think I met all of his kids that first trip. I'm pretty sure I did. I think both of his daughters came over. And uh, it, was a, it was a little overwhelming, but it was also wonderful and awesome. And they're great people. And I enjoyed all of them. And, you know, they're a tight-knit family and they have a lot of fun together. And, You know, it was good. It was good. I I do remember vividly stepping out into the garage at one point and calling my mom (laughs) and just needing to sort of re-anchor myself to to her and the family. And and I really didn't do it to reassure her, although I'm sure she had her own anxieties about me meeting my birth family. But I did it just because I needed to hear my mom's voice and just sort of need something familiar. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember, you know, I'm just going to step outside for a few minutes. <laughs> and I called my mom and had a brief conversation with her. And, and that was that was sort of all I needed. And I went back in and was like, OK, I'm OK now. <laughs> we can get back at it. Rebecca loved that she could fly to California and feel comfortable enough to stay with her birth father. It gave her peace to know that he was open to her asking anything she wanted. Back at work. Rebecca started looking for any adoption conference she could find that would send her back to California, so she managed to get her flight covered by work. Now, the first time she flew to the Golden State, she told her maternal sister she would be in town and asked if the family wanted to meet. They said no. The second time she flew out to see her birth father, she asked again if her sister wanted to meet with or without their mother. So my sister said, well, yeah, I think I would like to meet you. And why don't we plan on dinner one night while you're here? And so we made that plan. And the day we were going to meet for dinner, I just did like a quick text. I think we were texting by that point (laughs) and said, oh, just confirming. Where are we meeting? And she's like, well, mom and I will meet you. at." And I was like, excuse me, what? And so my birth mom came to that dinner. And I, uh, yeah, I did not know. (laughs) I did not know (laughs) at all. So we all went out to dinner. And it was very strange. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I 
sort of awkwardly. I don't think I hugged her until I was leaving. I awkwardly hugged her when I left and thanked her for coming and being willing to meet me. But we literally did not talk at all about who I am and about the whole point of why we're meeting. It was chit chat and how was your flight? And so what's Virginia like? And, um, you know, and I mean, I think at some point we even asked what I did for a living and I literally do adoption for a living and we still didn't talk about who I was and how I was related to them. And it was odd. <laughs> it was just odd. And I know that they were doing their best to be kind and open and, and let this happen, but didn't really want to go there so to speak and I just was I went into the mode of just being respectful I mean I, I literally channeled my social worker of I'm going to meet these people where they are at and this is where they are at and that's where we'll be and I'll be thrilled that I have been in person and in space with the woman who gave birth to me and hope that this leads somewhere else and so that's how I handled it and uh, went back to my birth father's house and went, well, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that was probably October of 2000. And just because my life was what it was in 2000, that same month, I received an email from my son's adoptive father. <laughs> and that was how I got reconnected to my son. So as I'm meeting everyone, it's all happening all together. In the same year, my son, both my birth parents, all at once. Unbelievably, Rebecca's birth son's family had found her at the same time she was connecting with her own birth family. Think about that for a second. Rebecca had written to her adoption agency over the years to share updates on her own medical condition for her son's family files. She also gave life updates on her graduation from high school, college, and graduate school, so the record would show her progress through her life. In an odd coincidence, when Rebecca first took her job in adoption, the very first conference she attended brought her face-to-face -face with someone she knew, her own social worker who helped her formulate her own adoption plan for her son. The woman was adding Rebecca's periodic notes to her son's file, passing some on to the family. When her son was 10, Rebecca actually received a letter from her son's parents. When he turned 18, the agency gave Rebecca his first name, but the parents were not in direct contact with one another. That October of 2000, Rebecca received an email from her son's adoptive father. She was confused as to how he got her email address, but she admitted she wasn't exactly hiding either. She never changed her last name when she got married, and she always kept the phone bill in her name. In the father's email to Rebecca, he said, he thought it would be nice for his son to have a caring adult to lean on as he opened the college chapter of his life. And what did I think about his introducing us by email, but my not telling him who I am, but just that I'm, you know, someone that maybe he could connect to and be like another caring adult in his life. And I was like, I realized that you just put in front of me the opportunity for me to know my son, but I am not going to do it that way. <laughs> and so while I really don't want to walk away from this opportunity to know who he is and where he is and how he's doing, I will not do it without being completely honest about who I am. So you do with that what you will. If 
if that is okay with you, then you know, you're more than welcome to share my information with him. But I am not walking into this relationship with a lie. That's just not going to happen. So he was, you know, he said, oh, I, I appreciate that. I understand that. He said, I just didn't know if this would be too overwhelming for him, but I knew you'd be someone who would care about him. And I thought it might be kind of nice for him to, you know, have someone that's not really his parents, you know, be in his life. And I was like, well, I'm open to it. If you want to pass my information on to him, feel free. And apparently he did. <laughs> when my son went home for Thanksgiving, he gave him an envelope of all of our emails that we exchanged quite a few by that point because I had a lengthy conversation with him about here's what I do for a living. Here's what I think about adoption. And here's why I won't do it this way. And he said, he told my son, here's what's in this envelope. Whenever you want to open it, all her information's in there. It's on you. You do what you want with it. And it took him until the following May for him to email me. So he, he sat on that envelope for a while. And then he finally emailed me in, in May of 2001. And we started our relationship there. And we emailed each other, exclusively email. We did not get on the phone with each other. It was actually years into our reunion before we actually spoke on the phone with each other. Really? <laughs> it's something, oh, it's something our spouses tease us about all the time. My son and I do not like to talk on the phone with each other. <laughs> it was all email, literally all email until we met in person. And then we would just try to find as many opportunities to see each other in person as we could. But we're fine writing to each other. We don't like being on the phone with each other. We both feel so awkward and we don't like to feel awkward with each other. But we're not awkward in person. I mean, we're not awkward on email. (laughs) It is very, it was years before I spoke to him on a phone. And and the first time I did, he was at my house and he left and he left his sunglasses here. And I told my husband, I said, call Craig and tell him his sunglasses. And he's like, nope, you got to call him. I'm like, oh don't make me talk on the phone with him. He's like, yep, you got to call him. I'm like, oh, man. So the first time I talked to him on the phone, it was to tell him he had left his sunglasses. For their first meeting, Rebecca's son invited her to come see his performance in a college play. He was a theater major. Rebecca and her husband went to the play, but the young man didn't want to meet her until after his performance. So... As a matter of fact, I didn't think we were going to meet until the next day, but he did want me to go see the performance that night. And so the first time that I laid eyes on him, I often say is like a birth mother's dream because I had permission to stare at him for about two and a half hours, (laughs) which, you know, as birth moms, we like to stare at our kids and it makes them uncomfortable. And so I had legit permission to stare at him while he was on stage in this play for two and a half hours. So I did not think we were going to meet in person face to face until the next day. But during intermission, his girlfriend actually came out and found me. He looks just like me. I mean, he's the male version of me. So it's not hard to tell that we're related. She came out and found me in intermission. And she said, you know, he really wants you to wait around after the play. He's decided he wants to just go ahead and meet you tonight. So that's what we did. And, um, My husband has it all on videotape of us meeting for the first time. And one of the things that is always noticeable to people when they see the video of us meeting for the first time is after we hugged and we were just standing there talking to each other, we both started wringing our hands in exactly the same way. (laughs) 
it is it is the most obvious thing on the film that anyone ever notices it's like look at your hands you're doing the same thing and he's awesome and we have a, a great relationship and we worked hard to have a good relationship and you know i i have tried to be as open and honest and forthcoming with him as i got to experience with my birth father and also the way i i just felt like it should be he can know anything that he needs to know and so yeah we're a very active part of each other's lives and we've we've now officially been in reunion longer than we were apart so (laughs) as of this year this is the first year that we've been together longer than we were apart (laughs) rebecca feels very fortunate to have re-entered her son's life while he was young enough for her to be helpful along his journey she enjoys their relationship, and she's looking forward to more good times together. Rebecca has met her son's parents, who have been very open and gracious with her. Before we ended, Rebecca said she had one more story to tell. Wait until you hear this. So, something else happened in the midst of all this, in that as the, the legal father was fascinated by all of this. And he and I actually did meet in person also. And he was lovely to me. I understand problematic issues with his marriage and his relationships with his kids. I totally get that. And he owned it. And But he was lovely to me. And his sister also you know, shared a lot of family history stuff with me and what she knew and understood uh, about the family at that time in 1965. And they sort of got interested in the California birth registry and they were sort of poking around on it themselves. And they called me and said, well, so what about this other kid? And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) So I went back and did a reverse search on the California birth index now using not looking for me on it, but looking at just my birth mother and how many kids come up for her and a fifth child is there after me and also named baby girl the last name which all the other first three children had full names i'm a baby girl this was also a baby girl so you know around 2000 i was like oh my gosh she's another child and i don't know what to do with that information it was like all too much and i chose to do nothing with the information fast forward to around 2009 so almost 10 years later as i'm at an adoption conference i used to go to aac conferences all the time american adoption congress and would always sit in in search workshops and met a woman and I sort of said, ah, you know, I think my birth mom might have had another child. She might have placed that child too. Or I don't know if the child's deceased or whether it's placed, but here's all I know, but I can't figure out how would I find this person? And there was a woman in this workshop. She goes, oh, I know how to do that. Contact me after the conference and I'll help you figure that out. And she did. <laughs> and she gave me a name. And I had another friend who was an excellent searcher. And I said, hey, here's this name. What can you do with it? I don't know if she's gotten married, changed her name. I have no idea. Can you find this person? She finds her. How? I'm not even sure because my sister doesn't even use her legal first name. She uses her middle name that she modified (laughs) and did get married and uses her married last name. But we found her. And the first thing we found was a, a video of her on the Internet. So we actually could see her. Uh, talking and she sounds just like me. Like you 
people would close their eyes and listen to this video and like, well, that's you talking. I'm like, that's not me. <laughs> that is my half sister. So I finally bit the bullet in January of 2010 and reached out to her on Facebook and said, I have no idea if you're going to be receptive to this or not. I don't know what you know. I think we're related. Call me and I'll explain. And she called me immediately. And she's like, I'm adopted. Are you adopted? I was like, I'm adopted. She goes, holy crap. What do you know? <laughs> and uh, I mean, she had always grown up knowing that her biological mother had four children, but she didn't know another one had been placed for adoption. And of course, I didn't know that she had come after me. She's two years younger than me. So <laughs> I find a fifth child, a second adoptee that my mother has placed. And of course, now we're in the, hey, I don't really have a great relationship with our birth mom. I do have a pretty decent relationship with our siblings by this point. And so I'm happy to connect you to all of them. But heads up, I do not know what kind of reception you're going to get. And I don't know if you want to go through the siblings first, or you want to go straight to birth mom. Like, what do you want to do? She's like, well, I think let's let me try to see if birth mom will treat me the same way she did you. <laughs> and sadly, she did. Her response to her first outreach to her was, you've got the wrong person. I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, so Maria came to me and said, so what do we do? And I said, well, I did a paternity test with my dad. Do you want to do a sibling test? And we did. And it was confirmed that we share half genetics. And so clearly she has to be our birth mother's other child. And so she went back to our birth mom and said, hey, <laughs> Rebecca and I did uh, prove that we are siblings. And so kind of think we must be <laughs> related. And she got a slightly warmer reception in that she basically was at least kind enough to say, well, yes, okay, I am her, but you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this and I'm really sorry. And so I don't think that she's had any other exchange with her other than that. And so from there, I just said, well, I don't know if we're letting out another secret to our siblings, but you want to go all in on this? We can go all in on this and I can introduce you to the siblings. And so, so we did. And no, they did not know. So they were again going back to their mom going, come on, <laughs> yeah, how did right. you not tell us about this one when we were learning about Rebecca? And I don't, I don't really, I'm making that up about what they might've said to her. I have no idea. I mean, truthfully, yeah, yeah. I mean, the three of them adore their mother and love her to pieces. And she clearly must have been a good mother to them because they're all three really wonderful people. You know, they've had successful marriages, they're successful parents, they've had successful careers, you know, they're, they're, they're good people. So, you know, she did a good job and she did it really on her own because their dad was not around. But so I don't know what their conversation was, but my, my sister Maria does know all the siblings. She's not met our sisters in person. So I don't know what, what else she'll do with that. So, yeah, I have met all my people now. But it, it took a long time and it was a lot of surprises. But I can honestly now say that all the people I'm biologically related to, I have some capacity to know all of them and have known all of them in some way, shape or form. <laughs> it is a little crazy. And, and you know, my work has, has at times been my therapy. My therapy has influenced my work. 
Um, you know, I, I hold myself highly accountable for all of my good choices and bad choices. I hold myself fierce to, you know, the core issues of adoption. I have got to work on them and I've got to be healthy and, and I do the work so that I, I can work in the profession in a sane way. And, and I, I really honestly could only work in this profession at this particular agency. I, I could not work at a more traditional agency. Couldn't do it. This agency is progressive and forward thinking and not at all interested in maintaining the status quo of old school adoption practices. And so I, I couldn't do it anywhere else. And I like to think that, you know, I've been able to have some influence by being a adoptee and a birth mom in a professional world where they often don't listen to adoptees and birth moms. And because I have all the right initials behind my name and I now am an executive director of a child facing agency, they sort of can't ignore me. Yeah. <laughs> I get to speak up in places that most adoptees and birth parents don't get to speak up. And, and I do loudly. And I, I do get quite a few people who I think roll their eyes when I walk in a room because they're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> Rebecca's going to have something to say about this. And I usually do. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you uniquely do, as you've said, you are, are, have been in every position and speak about them all. Yeah. And that's an expertise about the entire continuum of, of adoption not a yeah. lot of people have so i appreciate yeah. you speaking up and your advocacy and i appreciate you being here to open up and share the entirety of your own story it's just really powerful to hear and you sound like you are in such a good place like as you were speaking i was thinking wow this is such heavy stuff but she sounds really grounded in who she is and how she's navigated these things it sounds like she's good with herself <laughs> You know, I am. I am now. It's it's taken a long time to get there, though, Damon. And I, I think not unlike a lot of adoptees, it takes a lot of work and effort to to figure out the, the who am I, really. <laughs> it really has taken a lot of work. And it's work that's ongoing. And, and I don't I don't mind doing the work because I've seen the benefit of it. And the benefit is to be able to have rich, authentic relationships, to be able to be okay, even with rejecting experiences, and to, you know, keep this process of adoption being a process, you know, it, it's it's always going to be a process. It's not to say that I don't have my rough days. And, and I wish things were different with my birth mother. I really do. I I have a feeling she would be a really interesting person to know and to sit and talk with. And I wish I could have that opportunity. But it just, you know, whatever happened for her, around having to make these decisions has just closed her off to being willing to do that. And, and, you know, you can't make a person open up if they don't want to open up. So I will forever remain available. I will forever be open to it. If she ever changes her mind, I wish I was closer to all of my siblings. We all live really far apart and that makes it really hard. So, so relationship wise, it's social media sort of exclusive with all of them. And that's unfortunate too. You know, I think if you don't have time to spend with people to build memories and shared experiences, it makes it hard to, to, to have a really sort of intact relationship. But, you know, we do, 
communicate on social media and and I get to see glimpses of my birth mom through my siblings and <laughs> she's a lovely woman and seems to be doing well and, and I'm happy for that um, and yeah yeah well I'm glad to hear that and I'm so glad for you for being here today Rebecca thank you so much for taking time I, I just appreciate it well thank you I really have to thank you for your podcast. I can't tell you how many people I recommend listen to it. Uh, It's just, it's been really just a valuable contribution to the community and you're doing it very well. (laughs) So I really appreciate you uh, taking extra time with me tonight. Like I always say, it wouldn't be anything without the adoptees coming forward to tell their own stories. And you're part of that. Oh, that's true. I'm so thankful for everybody who sort of trusts me and help help them tell their own story. Yeah. Take care, Rebecca. No, you're welcome. You take care as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. Rebecca had the incredibly good fortune to be in reunion with all of her biology at the same time. Each reunion had its own trajectory. Her birth mother not wanting to meet her and things were awkward when they did. Her birth father wanting so much to see his long-lost daughter and opening up to share whatever Rebecca wanted to know. Reunification with her son, whom she said she would only meet if there were no false pretenses, and whom she has worked hard with to build a bond. And finding another long-lost sibling who had also been placed for adoption. To top it all off, she spent her career in adoption and serves as a vocal advocate for adoptees in her work. I found myself astonished at how many pieces of the adoption constellation experience Rebecca lives. One fact that stood out was that she's been in reunion longer than she's been apart from her son. That's a significant milestone that I'm guessing most adoptees don't get to experience. Some of us search for our bio relatives only to find a grave, or our bio parents are very old and there isn't enough time in reunion to pass that milestone together. Some birth parents don't want to meet us at all. But in each scenario, we were apart longer than we were together. Rebecca's story is really special in so many ways. She's the executive director of C2Adopt in Richmond, Virginia, an organization she's been with serving the adoption community since 1991. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Rebecca's journey that inspired you validates your feelings about wanting to search or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn who am i really if you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share you can follow the show at facebook.com slash really if the show is meaningful to you you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really, an adoptee memoir on amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.